Welcome to this edition of the Positive Populist Podcast. That's very difficult to say, yeah, right? I'm going to try. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to stop right there. So, so my guest today, very big honour, Dr. Ben Carson, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Delighted to be the with you. First time we've had an actual cabinet member on the podcast. This is a big moment. Very That's exciting. Great. So I'm going to ask the same first question I do uh, to all our guests. Are you, Ben Carson, a positive populist? I am an extremely positive populist. That, that's what keeps you going, you know, looking at the bright side of things uh-huh. and, uh, you know, having a, a, a worldview that says we're going to win. Uh-huh. And what did you, that, that word uh, populist it means different things to different people. What, when you hear that, what does that make you think? To, to me, it means about the people, uh-huh. uh, about what's happening in the society. You're not a hermit. And so a lot of people on all sides of politics would say, yeah, we care about people. Is there something sort of particular? I mean, when you, when you, see, when you think about it in the terms of your role at HUD, for example, how do you interpret that? Uh, I, I interpret it as someone who can, who's also a neuroscientist uh-huh. who recognizes the tremendous potential of the human brain. There's nothing in the universe that even begins to compare with the complexity and the capability of the human brain. It remembers everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever heard, uh-huh. can process more than two million bits of information in one second. You can't overload it. You hear people saying, you can overload your brain. You can't do it. If you learned one new fact every second, it yeah. would take you more than three million years to begin to challenge the capacity of your brain. And uh, having something like that, yeah. A normal brain can do almost anything. Some people say, for instance, I'm not good at math. Uh It's not true. Maybe you weren't taught the basics of math appropriately. But a normal human brain can easily do calculus or anything else. So, you know, when I I look at people in our society and, you know, I see a lot of people not realizing that potential... Mm -hmm. uh, it, it makes me want to do things that will change that. You know, for me, reading really turned my life around right. completely. And uh, I realized uh, that if you can get a young person uh-huh. reading at grade level by the third grade, it changes the trajectory of their life. You know, those who read at grade level uh, at, at grade three hardly ever drop out of mm-hmm. high school. So when you said it turned your life around, does, does that mean that there was a time when you weren't a reader, you weren't into books, and that changed? <laughs> That's putting it mildly. I was, I was the worst student you've ever seen. Really? You know, the other kids love having me in the classroom right. because I was the safety net. You never had to worry about getting the lowest mark as long as I was there. <laughs> and they called me all kind of names. It was pretty awful. But, uh, you know, my mother... Uh, who only had a third grade education. Uh-huh. You know, she had to raise us by by herself. She got married when she was 13, discovered that my father was a bigamist. So there she was trying to raise us. And uh, her cover was domestic worker. Uh-huh. She would go from house to house cleaning, but she was really a spy because she was observing these people with these beautiful homes. What do they do? Why are they so successful? And she's concluded that they didn't watch a lot of TV, but they did do a lot of reading and planning. And so she came home one day and imposed that on me and my brother. Uh-huh. 
And we were incredibly unhappy, and that's to say the least. In fact, if it were today's day, we would have called social services. <laughs> <laughs> so how old are you then at this point? Uh, I would have been like nine. Where, where are we? Just to paint the picture. Where In Detroit. Uh-huh. Nine or ten years old at that point. My brother was two years older than Right. Me. And uh, we were not happy, but uh, she... What did she say specifically that she, made you unhappy? She said, turn off the TV. You can only watch two or three pre-selected programs a week. Yeah. No, and I'm instead, you're going to read two books from the library and give me a written book report every week. Wow. And we didn't know that she couldn't read. So, you know, she put little check marks and highlights. We she no read. way. So she was making you think that she... <laughs> yeah. But, That's uh, incredible. But it had a powerful impact. Within, Two books a week. Yeah. And a written report. Written reports on each of the books. At age nine, starting age nine. Yeah. How long were the reports? Uh, usually a couple pages. Wow. Yeah. But... Uh, it made a And did you choose difference. the books? Or did yes, we chose the books. Right. I, I remember the first book was called Chip the Dam Builder. <laughs> it was about a beaver. It's a great book if you get a chance. <laughs> but uh, I, I got to the place where I love reading animal I read all the animal books in the library. Uh-huh. And then I went to plants. And then I went to rocks. Oh. Wow. And... Um, you know, we live near the railroad tracks, and what yeah. is there along the railroad tracks? Rocks. So yeah, I, I would yeah. collect boxes of rocks, bring them home, uh, learn what they were, identify them. And and one day, the fifth grade science teacher, Mr. Jake, walked in. He held up a big black shiny rock. He says, can anybody tell me what this is? Well, I never raised my hand. I never answered any questions. So, you know, I waited for one of the smart kids, and none of them raised their hand. I waited for one of the dumb kids, and nobody raised their <laughs> hand. So I raised my hand, and everybody turned around. They couldn't believe Carson's got his hand up. Oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> and he called me, and I said, Mr. Jake, that's obsidian. Wow. And there was silence in the room because nobody knew whether it was right or wrong. They didn't know if they should be laughing or impressed. And finally, Mr. Jake said, that's right, it is obsidian. And I said, obsidian is formed after volcanic eruption and the lava flows down and hits the water. There's a super cooling process. The elements coalesce. The air is forced out the surface glaze. They were all staring at me. And it was at that moment that I realized, I said, you're not dumb at all. I said, the reason you knew all that stuff because you've been reading these books. From that point on, no book was safe in my grasp. I read everything That's I could get amazing. my hands on. So it's not school, really. and that it's, 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 it's reading. It's your, it's your mom getting yeah. you to do it. Absolutely. Get, getting that spark going. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. By the way, I really relate to that. My, um, my eight-year-old, actually, boy, he's obsessed with obsidian. He keeps going on about obsidian. It's so interesting. He's like really into, <laughs> the, the, into the, the rocks and so on. And in fact, my eldest son, my, uh, my 11-year-old, he's really, he loves animal books. And, you know, so I can yeah. totally relate that. I don't make them do book reports, though. Mm. That's a very that's just a good tip. Well, you may not have to because they may be uh, good students already. That's an amazing story. So that is that what really um, sent you down the path of science that took yeah. you to and my brother medicine? Too. Yeah. You know, I became the brain surgeon and he became the rocket scientist. Is, is he literally a rocket scientist? That's what he... His last job was with Parker Aviation. Wow. <laughs> so what was the next step after, you, you know, you read more and more? Did you... Did you what took you to medicine? Uh, well, you know, I was interested in medicine even when I was a terrible student. Mm -hmm. I used to listen to the mission stories in church and Sabbath school. They frequently featured missionary doctors who seemed to me like the most noble people on mm -hmm. the face of the earth. And 
that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, it changed over time from missionary doctor to psychiatrist. So the doctor thing was quite early on. It was. That's what you wanted to be. And when I got into medical school, you know, I had this tremendous interest in the brain. And Uh I realized I had a lot of eye-hand coordination, the ability to think in three dimensions. How did you realize that? Um, Well, in three dimensions, it was because I was so good at table soccer. That's, a, that's the least expected answer from a brain surgeon. That's amazing. And, and also, you know, I got the chance uh, to work in a steel factory and uh, the summer job. Wait, sorry, I've got to go. So you would, so the foosball, that was as a student, you were doing the... F- yeah, yeah. And then I, I got to work in the steel factory and they let me drive the crane. Right. Uh, which requires tremendous steadiness. Yeah. Taking tons of steel through narrow areas and putting them on the flatbed of a truck. And, yeah. And they said they never let students do that, but they said, you're so good at it, but just let me do it. And um, so I, I started thinking with my interest in the brain, maybe you should be a brain surgeon. And a lot of people thought that was a strange thought. At that time, there had been eight black neurosurgeons in the world. So it was not a, a usual pathway. But, you know, I believe that when God gives you a talent, he doesn't care what color you are. Of course. And so this wasn't – it wasn't like a suggestion of someone else, oh, you you may have an aptitude for this. You you put those elements I together. put those together. And, wow. And that's, that's what I came up with. And, you know, it just seemed like a natural fit, uh, like a duck on the water. That's just amazing. I love the f- – f- so – that was so. That's your medical school at this point. Yes. And then you chose the neuroscience. Um, so neurosurgery. I, I yes. Chose neurosurgery, and right. you know, I, I went on to Johns Hopkins and trained there, and and became the director of pediatric neurosurgery at a very young age. After, yeah. After having gone to Australia, uh-huh. and that was kind of a strange thing because when I was chief resident at Hopkins, we had the grand opening of the new neuroscience center, and since Hopkins is like the modern birthplace of neurosurgery, all the big wigs from around the world were there. Uh-huh. And one of the the guys from Australia, he took a liking to me. He said, "You should come to Australia to be our senior registrar." And I said, Australia, you can't. I didn't say that out loud, but yeah. I was thinking, so, I said, you know, you drill a hole from Baltimore, you come out in Australia. <laughs> Plus, I had heard they had a whites-only policy, so, you know, I just, I don't want to go there. But it seemed like every time I turned around, there was somebody saying, good, I might. You know, I just kept meeting <laughs> Australians. Every time. We would turn the TV on, there'd be a special about Australia, so I said to my wife, I think the Lord wants us to go to Australia. Uh-huh. So she did a lot of research, found out they did have a whites-only policy, but it was a unofficial policy that had officially been abolished in 1968. Wow. So we sold all of our earthly goods and off we went to Australia. Our friends were saying, you'll be back in three weeks. But little did they know we didn't have any more money, so we we couldn't come back. (laughs) (laughs) But the biggest problem we had was keeping up with all the dinner invitations. They love Americans in Australia. And probably the second biggest problem is every time I sat down and start writing in a chart, someone would come up and say, can I feel your hair? No way. And I would say, That's... you can feel it, but it's going to cost you 10 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to always have fun with the Aussies because I'd tell them I couldn't remember any of their names because they all looked alike. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but it was a great experience because there yeah. were only four neurosurgical consultants. Right. And uh, once they discovered that I knew how to operate, you know, they did a lot of operating in the peripheral hospitals mm-hmm. and left me in the 
and the principal teaching hospital, and I was doing like three or four major craniotomies every day. If I'd stayed on the faculty at Hopkins as the low man in the totem pole, I would have gotten what nobody else wanted to do. Here I was doing all these prime cases. So when I came back a year later and the position opened up for chief of pediatric neurosurgery, instead of going out and getting somebody with a big name and a lot of gray hair, they said, well, Carson's very young, but he knows how to do everything. Mm. So it just worked out. It was my wilderness experience. How amazing. And during this period, I mean, was your um, your thinking about policy and, and, and politics and government and all this kind of stuff developing in parallel to that, or were you just focused on... No, I was always very interested. I, I always followed the political world very carefully. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even my own philosophy changed because, you know, throughout, you know, my life, you know, growing up in Detroit... Mm-hmm then going to Yale and New Haven and coming to Ann Arbor. All of these are, you know, bastions of liberalism mm-hmm. and then going to Baltimore. Right. So, you know, I was a very liberal Democrat. You were? I was. Okay. And But then, you know, as I started seeing so many patients coming in, yeah. you know, able-bodied people who were dependent on government, think, I said, yeah. there's something wrong here. And and then I did something you're never supposed to do as a liberal. I listened to Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and I said, that guy doesn't sound like a racist, bigoted, hateful person. He uh-huh. makes sense. And, you know, I, I began changing. But continued to always look for what are those things that can be done uh-huh. to lift people up, to yeah. elevate people, to get people to understand what's going on. And, you know, not to think that you're a victim and that somebody else is in control of your life. You know, there's so much of that going on in our society today. You're a victim. They got their foot on your neck. They're holding you down, all that kind of stuff. Even if there are people who are in the way, Mm -hmm. you can get around them. Well, this is, what's really interesting about what you said is that, it, that it, I can see how that belief in people's potential, which is something that you know that lo- a lot of a lot of people would would say, yeah, I, you know, we all want to see people maximize their potential. Right. That's not a left or right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, people on the right would be more t- would tend more to sort of favor um, self. Uh, taking responsibility for yourself and right. all the rest of it. But what I find so interesting is that this is informed for you by the science, the the, med- that, the, the point you made earlier about the brain and the right. capacity of the brain. Knowing what people are capable of. Yeah. And, you know, if you take somebody with a mindset of, of can-do-ism, mm-hmm. you can put them in some pretty bad situations. They're going to find their way out of there. And if you take somebody who has a defeatist attitude, you can put them in a good situation, they'll find a way into a bad situation. Right. <laughs> and so when you when you were hearing was that when he was president or running for president, what, roughly when was that's, it? That's when he was president. Uh, that was around, you know, 84. And did you sort of do anything about that? that um, or did you sort of privately start? No, just, uh, just privately started right. changing my thought. You know, but, you know, I actually don't think that there are huge differences between the most radical left-winger and the most conservative right-winger. Mm-hmm. You know, they agree on most things. 
But what we've done is if we, we've let that 10% of things that they don't agree on, we've allowed the purveyors of hatred and division to magnify those mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. and make people think that that's the most important thing. And it, it concerns me because our country is very strong. It's actually doing very well economically. Mm-hmm. The only thing that can derail us is us. Right. And, uh, you know, there seems to be a lot of forces trying to make that happen. When, when was the first time that you put yourself out there in the arena, in, in the political arena? Well, you know, I, I had no thought about politics whatsoever. Uh, and then in 2013, I was asked to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast, which uh-huh. I thought was very strange because I had spoken at the National Prayer Breakfast in 1997. I wasn't aware anybody ever did it twice. Right. Research demonstrated there was one person who did it twice, and that was Billy Graham. So uh-huh. I said, that's pretty good okay. company. So I said, Lord, what do you want me to say? I had no idea what I was going to say. I didn't know until the morning of the prayer breakfast. And then it was very clear to me at that point uh, that, um, you know, I just, uh, people started saying after the speech, you need to run for office. And I didn't want to run for office. I said, if I ignore them, it'll go away. But it didn't go away. It it kept multiplying. And... uh, and then I said, Lord, I don't have any of the things that people run for president have. You know, I, I don't have a Rolodex with all the contacts yeah. and I have a, a big campaign fund. I don't have an organization. I said, if, so if you want me to run, you got to provide all that. The next thing I knew, it was all there. Wow. And uh, so it, it was very interesting. But, you know, uh, running for president was an interesting experience. But one of the most positive things about it was getting to know people across this country uh-huh. and and what motivated people and really it gives me a lot of confidence in the american people mm-hmm. you know from from montana to florida to michigan uh really really good people and and that's one of the reasons that even though i i wanted to remain in the private sector mm-hmm. after the presidential race mm-hmm. And uh, had just all kinds of wonderful things going on. I realized that we have a responsibility to the people who are coming after us, and particularly to the children. And my whole professional career was aimed at the well-being of children and recognizing what kind of country are we going to leave for them Mm -hmm. if we all just live in comfort Mm-hmm. And if we don't do whatever it is that we can do to improve the atmosphere for those who are coming after us. And, you know, that's why I wanted to do it. And of of all the federal agencies, HUD seemed to be the best place to be able right. to do that and to really be able to, to help people. So did you have your pick letters. of them or did, was that the one? That yeah, the, yeah, the, the was president. Right. Uh, you know, told me early on, what, what do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad way to start the conversation. Yeah. But uh, I just figured this this is where we can really change the trajectory. Yeah. And, and help people to climb that ladder of self-sufficiency and not yank the ladder out as soon as they start climbing it, mm-hmm. which has been done so many times before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, by people who meant well. Mm-hmm but perhaps weren't looking at the total effect of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, and that's why you have people who say, well, I'm not climbing that ladder. <laughs> and they're going to yank my 
I'm just going to stay here yeah. for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, whatever. And, uh, you know, they ha- those are the people I'm talking about who have yeah. so much potential, who have those incredible brains, who could be doing all kinds of things. It feels to me like if you could meet those people one at a time, you could give them that message. You could inspire them with that idea. How do you sort of convey that through this massive Bureaucracy. Well, it's 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 a tough job. Believe me. I wish all those people had my mother. We wouldn't have any issues. <laughs> but, um, it's it's a difficult job because you know we're in our our system was designed for people to have different opinions, mm-hmm. to have disagreements, to be able to work those things out. Our system was not designed for resistance for. If you believe it, then I don't believe it. If right. you want it, then I don't want it. It was not designed for that. So we're in a very precarious place uh, right now. And uh, it's it's going to require somebody has to be the adult. It, it can't be tit for tat. If it continues to be tit for tat, we're doomed. And so what's been your, you know, professionally, this job, compared to what you've done before? What what are the things that are really different about it, or or perhaps the same? Uh, Well, there are some things that are the same in the sense that in my previous job, you had an opportunity to give people a second chance at life, many of whom were dying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in this job, you have a chance to give a lot more people Mm -hmm. an opportunity. Um, And they're both... Very difficult jobs. Yeah. And they both require a lot of dedicated people. You know, you're just one person. You have, I happen to be the secretary at HUD, but, you know, I could not do this job without a lot of other extremely talented and dedicated people, just like as a neurosurgeon. Yeah. I could not do the operations by myself. And now you said you were going to be leaving. What's, what's next for you? Well, uh, I said that my preference was to be back in the private sector. Okay. But I didn't actually say I was leaving. Oh, okay. I, mis- I misunderstood that. Well, a lot of people in the media misunderstood <laughs> Okay. That. Uh, I think it was intentionally made to look that way. Uh-huh. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we got to get this ship turned around. Yeah. And sailing in the right direction. And, uh, you know, I'll be here as long as it takes to get that done. I hope we can get it done quickly. So even even if the president is reelected beyond you know into into his second term if he if wants you to do it yes well I personally just hearing you talk about it and how you see it I think that has just got to be good news for a lot of people if that if that were to be the case Ben Carson thank you so much it's been such a pleasure it's been great being with you thank you thanks from the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.